Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Building a Bridge. My name is Jesse Brizendine. My name is Jared Countess, and our mission is to empower people to use their voice to build a bridge beyond race relations, creating unity and understanding, and effectively raising the collective consciousness of humanity. Last week, we entered into a conversation with our guest, Tony Rodardi, who agreed to come back with us today. And we started talking about police relations and got into really some fascinating discussion. Tony's graciously agreed to come back and answer some of your yeah. questions directly today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for being back, Tony. So we'll go ahead and start off with you were mentioning you wanted to talk about a little bit about some of the training and what goes into the hiring process of becoming a police officer. And I think that'd be really valuable for people just to conceptualize what that process is like to going from wanting to become to actually becoming an officer. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's a lot of value if we just talk about the foundational component of, of, of training and hiring, uh, really, what does that look like? Um, let me, if I could, you want me to talk a little bit about the hiring process first? Do you want to go right into the training? What do you guys prefer? Yeah, I think it would be great just like what hiring process. Yeah, sure. But yeah, absolutely. So again, and this is just my perspective. Uh, this is what I went through um, when I when I was getting hired in the uh, mid to late 90s. Um, it's a little bit different than it is now, uh, but structurally the process is pretty much the same. Uh, you have to do a written test, um, and there's there's hundreds, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of applicants testing for a handful of positions. Now it's different. There, there are definitely more open positions available, but you go through a testing process first, um, and then they glean the top scores out of that, and then you move on to a physical agility test, and that's very standardized. Um, uh, for me, it was a mile and a half run. You got to do some push-ups, sit-ups. Um, a body drag. Uh, there's a couple different variations on what that looks like, but there will be some type of physical agility test. They just want to make sure that you are physically capable of doing the job that you're applying for. And those two things, I'll be honest with you, weed out the vast majority of everybody that applies for the job. Hmm. Once you get through those two, um, you get really specific on kind of some of the next steps. So a couple of those next steps are you have to go take a polygraph um, and they'll ask you very uncomfortable questions um, and they get right down to it. They don't play games on the polygraph. Um, they'll cover your drug abuse or if you've used drugs, if you've committed any crimes that were not detected. Um, there's no personal space when you're taking a polygraph and intentionally because they want to make sure they know who the applicant is. And then you'll do uh, an oral board. Um, and I apologize, I guess if we're going in order, the oral board would come before the polygraph. So you'll do an oral board and that usually consists of some uh, type of personnel from their command staff. It's usually three or four that will interview a single applicant. And there'll be several questions. These, these are not quick interviews. Uh, you're probably looking at 30 minutes minimum, I would guess. It's not uh, uncommon for one to go longer than that. And there'll be the standard why you question. Um, but they'll also have some scenario uh, questions that you need to be prepared for. Um, they may ask you questions about the community that you're getting ready to serve or that you're applying for. They may ask you demographically, what does the community look like? Uh, uh, they may ask you questions about uh, the local government. Um, so you really need to be prepared if you're going into this for what that specific community looks like. After that, um, again, you'll do a polygraph. Uh, you'll do a psychological evaluation. So before you will ever be hired, you have to be psychologically cleared. 
Um, and I don't know if most people know that, but there's a, it's a standardized process you have to go to. You have to take a test. You have to be evaluated. Um, and, and those two are very specific. They ask you a lot of questions, but there's certain, and I can't get into the science behind it. I'll be totally honest with you. I was just on the applicant side of this, but there's a very specific uh, candidate they're looking for. Um, and I don't know all the specifics behind that. Um, once you do that, you'll also have to get a medical. You'll have to get a medical clearance. The, the police academy itself is very, very strenuous. Um, and you have to be physically prepared to be able to do that. So you have to have uh, a medical clearance that basically says it's safe for you to uh, enter this environment of a police academy. That's a long process. It's super easy to talk about, but you're talking about months upon months upon months. It's not uncommon to start this process and be in the process for six months or 12 months. Um, again, now because they're doing so much hiring, because so many guys like me have retired, um, it's probably streamlined a little bit, um, but it's, it's a very long process. Um, I'd like to talk about hiring, but before, I'm sorry, about training, but before I transition, are there questions you guys have about the hiring process? I, I definitely have questions. I know you can't answer um, as to what type of applicant they're looking for. I do, I do have a, I had a new guy who was a former Navy SEAL who I think he didn't get in to, to the police after he left. And I was pretty sure it was because he failed the psych. So <laughs> the psych he failed. <laughs> I, think, I think he was physically capable. I'm pretty sure he failed the psych, the psyche veil portion. Um, but uh, so I guess for me, it kind of begs the question, um, you know, I guess you always have people slip through the crevice, right? Um, but like, how, how do you, I guess we could probably answer this later, but where do you think things go wrong? Because it sounds like, you know, you, you screen and do everything that people want you to do to pick the best of the best people for the job. Um, and I, I guess that's why in all, and you know, everybody says 99% of cops are, are good. Um, and in the majority, like by the way that our society is structured um, and, you know, even though we do have problems, um, overall, we live, a, you know, a pretty safe country, right? We live in a pretty great place. And so it, it kind of uh, makes sense that these hiring processes are doing their job decently. But where do you think maybe some of the holes are? And, um, you know, wh what do you think, what do you think goes wrong at like, a, you know, you have like a Derek Chauvin, right? Or yeah, a police officer police officer that slams, you know, a 16 year old girl to the ground or something like that. Sure. So these, as, as great as these practices are, the hiring practices are, and I think they're great. I think they're probably as good as they can get, uh, but you're going to have people fall through the cracks. It's going to happen. Um, it's not a perfect system. It's a good system. It, you, it, you could even say it's a great system, but it's not a perfect system. Um, I also think this job changes people. I think when you get onto this job, I think oftentimes you're different from the guy that got hired to the guy that you are 20 years later, 15 years later. Again, not everybody goes south. Not everybody turns into a bad cop, but it happens. You have guys that just, and, and it's not just guys. You have men and women that are impacted by this profession negatively. Um, thankfully, those are small numbers. The vast majority are not, but it does happen. Tony, I wanted to just follow up off of that real quick. The psych eval, the polygraph, 
upon hiring, is there any additional, as the job goes on, like a six month psych eval polygraph or a one year or a two year psych eval polygraph? And if not, do you think that there might be any value in that if there was some sort of ongoing accountability or check-in piece or something like that with officers? I think we got to do a better job with the mental health aspect of it. Um, and that's, that's really what it comes down to. There's not, once you clear your psychological evaluation, you're not going to have another one. Now you will, if you get involved in a shooting, an officer involved in shooting, uh, you're most, most of the time, you're going to have another psychological evaluation to make sure that you're good. You're definitely going to have some time off. You'll be reevaluated. Um, but shy of that, I mean, if you serve out a 20 year career and you never get involved in a shooting, you never have, uh, you're never involved in any criminal activity or anything like that. You're probably never going to be evaluated again. Wow. Um, at least again, from my perspective, when I went through this, I, I can't answer for anything that may have changed in the last couple of years, but I, I really doubt if we've had that much change, to be honest with you, in the last two years. And, and just to piggyback off that, when you were saying before that, like for a lot of officers, the job changes you. And I can totally get that. Like when I talk to friends from law enforcement and some of the stuff they share, I don't see how it can't change, you know, somebody just the experiences and what you're going through. And I'm wondering then for those kinds of things that is causing change, how much of that is actually a related to officer involved shootings? Because it seems like my perception is officer involved shooting would be the small amount, but then the majority of maybe that people are going through isn't involved in shootings, but then it's like the majority of things that are changing aren't the ones that have the follow-up with it, which maybe goes into more of the mental health piece. And yeah, I, I, I do agree. The shootings are a very small aspect. So statistically, um, most officers are, most officers are not even going to be involved in a shooting. Uh, I did a 20 year career. I was never involved in a shooting. I was never involved on the shooting side of a shooting. Um, th those are very rare occurrences. Um, I think where guys and girls get into trouble is long-term effects on just things they're seeing, day-to-day -day operations, uh, things that they're exposed to. Um, and if you don't have the appropriate mental health aspect to guide you through that process, I think people can get in trouble. I think it's, I think it's like you said, um, or like we talked about in our last talk, where um, you know, the job of a police officer is to deal with the ugly things in the world, right? the, you know, criminals, right? Criminality. And most people don't know how bad of a world we really live in. And so then you come into, you become a police officer and you don't know, like no one, you can't, even a, a regular 18 year old, even that grows up in a bad place, doesn't even know every bad thing that happened, right? And then you become a police officer with these, with this idea that you're gonna fight crime. And then you're like, wow, like, oh, the world really is, this is crime. Like this is really, this is really rough, and you deal with it um, on a on a regular basis. Um, yeah. So anyway, anyway uh, I think I'm gonna. I know we're gonna get into our questions, and I know we're gonna do training. But I think we answered um, one of the questions that somebody had. Um, sorry, we posed groups questions to the group. I'm jumping all over the place. These guys are gonna get upset with me. But we posed yeah. questions to the group, and um, I wanted to make sure we crossed off some of those questions just right now as we were going. Um, and so we just went through the whole hiring process. I guess one of the questions was, you know, what type of personality is attracted to becoming a cop? Um, and I think in that 
hiring process, I think they screen out the pretty good personalities, right? It's, it seems to me like yeah, they, they, they know what they're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me like they get people that want to do the job and then maybe the job affects them and uh, things, you know, go south sometimes. Yeah. Tony, yeah. you know, I, 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 I'm sorry, go ahead, Jesse. Oh, no, I, I, I just, if, if you don't mind, I know you want to get into the training piece of it too. And I, I'm really excited to hear about that. And I wanted to know just one other piece of this, and maybe this all goes into the mental health too, is, is, is there, you know, for most of us who have quote unquote normal jobs, if we're having a bad day, there's a fight at home, we find out our spouse is having an affair, you know, somebody gets sick, whatever it is we we show up and we're we're broken and we have to deal with whatever it is we're dealing with we're not having to deal with necessarily situations where we're then going out and seeing some sort of horrible horrible thing happening and like to happen to a kid or something like that or and i guess that's a long way of saying is there anything in the police department or in law enforcement that that maybe protects officers who are going through challenging personal things to be able to help them create a barrier of separation between the emotion that they have at home and not bring it into, into work. Sure. Yeah. Most, most agencies have um, what they call a peer support group. Um, I, I was, to be honest with you, I was never a huge fan of peer support. Um, but th- those do exist. Um, I, I I, I will tell you this too, just from a personal perspective, th- those are conversations I would have with my wife. So I worked patrol for several years. I, most of my career was spent in investigations and over half was in homicide, but I spent a few years in patrol starting working weekend nights. Um, and guess what? We're human. I'd have bad nights. Things just weren't going right at home. Um, just uh, not clicking with my wife. Maybe it's an argument. Maybe it's something we didn't see eye to eye on. And then boom, I had to go to work. And I'm thinking about that discussion with her and how am I going to resolve that at home? And what does that look like? And yet I got to be locked on because I'm now going to a hot call of a family fighting or shots fired. And I would tell my wife all the time and my wife's amazing, but I'd get to that point and I'd have to say time out. We, we can't, I can't go there right now. I got to leave for work in three hours. Got to leave for work in two hours. Got to leave for work in one hour. And I got to be mentally prepared and focused to go to work because if I'm thinking about you, and how I can make you happy and how I can fix this. I'm going to lose focus is what I'm doing. And I, I don't, this isn't a death wish. I don't want to die. I'm willing to make that ultimate sacrifice, but I don't want to add to it. Um, I don't want it to be part of my negligence. And so my wife was amazing. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It's real life scenarios. You're going to have problems. You're going to go to work. I think that's sometimes where people get in trouble if they don't have a great home life. I did. There are peer support groups. Um, and they are available. Most agencies have somebody or a group of people that you can talk to. Um, I'll be honest with you. I, I wasn't interested in talking to peers in that, in that respect. If I was going to get help, I wanted help, um, professional help. And ultimately, I, I did do that, but it was after I left. But um, yeah, it's a great question. I also wanted to tell you a little bit about the training. I don't think we covered this, but I wanted to talk about the age. So in Arizona, you got to be 21 to be a police officer. That's incredibly young. Uh, I don't know where you guys were at 21. Uh, <laughs> I was in a bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, yeah you, you probably weren't in a police academy. So no, I went through a police no, academy. I, at, I was 23 years old when I went through the police academy. And that's pretty wow. stinking young. That's very young. Um, I, 
I didn't think it was young at the time. I thought, well, heck, I, I missed the boat. I could have been a cop at 21. How come I'm waiting until 23, blah, 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 blah. Um, but that's awfully young. Um, and that could come into play too with some of the uh, concerns we have long-term. These guys that get in super young, stay a very long time, then that occupation completely identifies them and molds them. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. In, in, in the military, they want that. Right. I got into yeah. the military. I was late in the military. So I was 23 going into the, going into the Marine Corps. Right. And that was, I was the old man. You know what I mean? Cause most of those guys are 18. And so they, they want the military to define you, but um, it's such a different um, mentality, which is why I told, uh, I think it was, I think it was Patty that when she was talking about them putting, talking about putting police, because the whole world is going through this craziness, right? Sure. Yeah. So we've been talking about putting um, the military on the ground in certain areas in the UK. And she was like super worried. And I was like, yeah, because if you think the police are bad, you don't want the military policing your populace because then a lot less questions are asked. Yeah. And people are not, which is why my buddy who's a Navy SEAL did not get in to the police force because he's, he doesn't know how to deal with you know regular people that he's supposed to be you know helping them all out right or whatever um you know his, his way of handling the conflict is different um and, and i think that's also probably like, like you said it, it, you're so idealistic in your 20s and you just you think you know how the world works and you know like by the time you're 30, you're like, oh, I didn't know shit. And I mean, that's it's like less than 10 years later, you're like, fuck, I was an idiot, right? <laughs> <laughs> you're like, and so, um, you know, I just can imagine how much that, that has shaped you, again, when your job is to, is to deal with the ugliness of society, right? The things that, you know, people do that, you know, most 20-year-olds most really have, have, you know, no conception of, or they just think, you know, a child homicide, is a one-off thing, right? They think it's, you know what I mean? They don't, they think that a kidnapping is like, oh, that happens once every couple of years because they don't know about the thousands that they don't hear about. Then you become a police officer and you hear about these things, you see these things and it's like, oh man, like, you know, I, see, I just, I see, I see so much, right? And it's like- Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I I'm wondering, Tony, like I, I never, I didn't know that. And it's, it's fascinating hearing both you and Jared share because I'm thinking about my experience at 21 years old and where I was at in my life. And I was in college, you know, I couldn't wait to turn 21 because I can buy booze and I'm in my head all the time. And my worries are like, Oh, if that girl talked to me, does that mean she's interested in me? And you know, how am I going to scrape together beer money and, and, you know, and then bragging the next morning about how much we drink or whatever, you know, those kinds of things. Like, and the point of that is, is like, I can't even imagine trying to deal with my own getting to know myself and sorting through my own insecurities and my own issues with, you know, just the things that seemed so big to me at that time and then have the responsibility of a police officer. And so I'm wondering, is there like, do you feel that maybe is, is, if 21 is too young, is there an ideal age that it, it becomes more of a, you know, I don't even know, like, because I, I work with people from, I mean, in leadership positions sometimes. And I think even in their fifties, they haven't emotionally matured enough sometimes to do the stuff they're doing. So I guess it's yeah. hard to say, is there ever, but is there a point where 
we need to have enough life experience or that type of thing to come into where there's a certain maturity that goes into that. So I will tell you this, uh, there are some recruits that can do this at 21. There absolutely are. Um, and that's why those standards are at 21. They do find people. They know specifically who they're looking for. You know, another similarity, at least for Arizona, firefighters have to be 18 or did uh, when I was applying for police. That's incredibly young too. Most guys don't get in at 18. You, mm. you do get some guys that do. Same with police. Most guys don't get in at 21. And, and again, I keep saying guys, I'm not implying that it's all men. Uh, most recruits do not get into the academy at 21. Um, at what's the perfect age? Man, I don't know. We, we could talk about this for the next three hours on what that looks like. I think ideally, uh, personally, I think you got to have a little bit of life experience. Well, I know you have to have a little bit of life experience. And I did. Um, I worked for an ambulance uh, company um, right out of high school, going to college. I was working on an ambulance. It gave me some real world experience that I knew a police department was looking for when I was doing that job. 80% of the guys on the ambulance wanted to be firefighters, 20 wanted to be police. That was it. Um, and so that was a good stepping stone for me. It was a place I needed to go. Um, but I knew what the police department was looking for. I knew that they wanted structure. I knew that they wanted people with experience, real world experience. What does that look like? Um, and for me, an ambulance service was able to provide that. Um, I think probably, uh, I, I think in general, 21 is pretty young, but absolutely there are some 21 year olds that can do this um, and, and have great careers doing that. I did it at 23. I, I like to think I had a great career. Um, never had any discipline issues, was never suspended, never any use of force um, issues, nothing. And I went in super young and that job molded me a lot. Uh, but I also like to think it molded me for the good too. Yes. Um, yes. I, I think we need to not lose sight of that. I don't want to focus on this all turns negative. It all turns bad. There, there's some massive upside to this. And I like to think I'm an example of the upside. What was that's what upside? I was going to say. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry Jared. Okay. Thanks. Uh, that's what I was going to say. I was, I was going to say that I like that they allow people 20, 21 to me seems like a good age. And I do want the job to mold them to a certain extent. You know, like I said, just, just having been in the Marine Corps, you want the Marines to, I joined the Marines to be molded to a yeah. certain extent, right? I know, I knew that, right? Going in, I was like, I have some things that I don't like about who I'm as a person, who I'm as a, as a man, right? And I want to be able to know that I can, or have the tools to discipline myself like that. Does that, am I making any kind of sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the Marines, and the Marines instilled those tools in them and knew, and made me know that, okay, Jared, you can do this, right? Like if you lock in, you're locked in, you're focused, you can go, right? And it put me in a position where I learned to work that muscle, right? And then honor code and all these other things. So I, I think you want someone in, in, in coming in, you know, decently young. I wouldn't want someone wanting to become a cop at 40. Right. No. That would make me fucking super nervous. I'd be like, what do yeah. you mean you want to be a cop at 40? Like, I would just think you were, no offense. I would think you were a failure in life. And you're like, this is, <laughs> this yeah. is, yeah. this is the job that I, uh, uh, fuck it. I'm going to be a fucking cop. Right. Um, you know, I, I don't want that. Um, but I, I, I think that the other stuff, and I think we're going to keep coming back to that mental health side of it is that, you can the job can mold you even better 
and mold you into a, a police officer that you know society really wants as long as as long as that is there and i don't think peer groups do it well enough one because you know there are friends you go to it for advice that are going to give you the absolute worst fucking <laughs> advice <laughs> in the world like it's just like did you even think about that before you said it out of your mouth like really and then sometimes because you're angry or emotional at the time he'll take them up on it like yeah let's go yeah fuck it fuck her fuck that right and it's like you know um i'm gonna i'll tell I'll be real personal um when covid first hit like me and my you know we had me and my wife had a huge knockdown drag out fight um over the stupidest thing and it was i mean it was just so so dumb and um i won't get into the details of it but um it, it was really upset and, and she, i will say this she was wrong <laughs> she picked the fight with me because she was angry about something else and which we you know later kind of bottom to it but i have a a good friend and client who's a psychologist Right. So I called him up and talked to him. I was like, man, like I'm going through it, bro. Like, I think this is, uh, this is, I'm done with this and I'm so mad. And she asked me, I was like, you know, when we have these arguments and fights, it ruins my day. It affects my whole way. I was like, I got a business to run. Can't work. I can't focus. I can't concentrate, you know? And he was like, huh. And he said to me, he was like, all right. He was like, you get so upset. Just to start off with this premise, you get so upset because you care, right? And I was like, fuck you, <laughs> You know what I mean? It was like, no, I'm just saying. He was like, I'm not saying you don't have reason to be upset, but the reason that it cripples your day is because you care about this woman and you love her, right? And I was like, oh, right? And so, you know, and so it was like, so whatever you decide, come to it from that place, right? Um, come to it from the place of, of you know, come from, don't, don't pretend like you hate her. Don't pretend like, you know, she's all of these negative things that you say that she is. Pretend like, okay, this is a problem, right? And, and, and it upsets me and stuff like that. But the reason that is consuming your thoughts and everything is because you care so much. If you didn't care, it would just roll off your back like water. And, um, and so, you know, I could have called somebody else who would have completely co-signed. Right. <laughs> like she's out of pocket, blah, 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 blah. And don't get me wrong. We still have, we had to have some hard conversations and stuff like that from a level headed place. But, you know, there are friends you can talk to that, that will t give you, and sometimes you call those friends, right? Sometimes you want the bad advice and you'll call the friend who's going to get not, you won't call your rational friend. You'll call your 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 friend that you know is emotional and a hot hit and blah 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 blah. And so I think like I would think that that's one of the problems with with peer groups. Um, and then the other problem, of course, is gossip. And so like, are you going to get quality advice from you know a peer group, and then or and also um, you know what do you what do you open yourself up to? and a work environment in terms of, you know, that kind of a, a peer group, right? It, it, it's just like, I think, especially, especially from cops or, you know, military, if you're still in the military, right? Um, just if we want to talk about personalities of people that join those institutions, um, 
definitely not not a not a personality that like I want to I want to show weakness or that kind of weakness with people not only that are my coworkers but to a certain extent they depend on me and I need them to know every day more than anything that I'm dependable right so so I think that I think that to me like in, in a job of a cop in a job of you know a marine or a military person is that I need the person to sit next to me to know that I'm dependable and for sometimes you know we don't have a relationship where I can I can let you know I'm hurting and then you can still trust me to to do my job to get the fucking job done and so and I think that that spreads like wildfire and fucking it'll ruin your reputation I, 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 yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I also want to clarify too, when I say peer support, um, so I worked for a county agent, I worked for a county sheriff's office. It was a large, one of the largest in the country. Um, but our peer support group was not all just deputies. We had detention, we had civilians, we had sworn. Um, so I think that's where it becomes a bit of a, of a messy pool. Um, I'm much more comfortable talking to a true peer, peer to peer, another okay. deputy that's been through a police academy, they know what it's like. They've been on the street. Um, I, I know every agency is a little different on what they offer. Um, I will also tell you, we had an informal peer support group just in our homicide unit. The men and women that were holding us each accountable to each other because I knew every day a tactical team's like that too. Um, the more specified your field is, the more accountability you have from within. So no matter what your agency's doing, we held people accountable on our squad because my life depended on his or her life and the actions that they took. So um, unfortunately our patrol men and women don't always get that. Um, I also wanted to clarify too, you know, for the, the we talk about the early twenties, I think optimal is early twenties to get hired. Um, it's, a, it's a young man's sport. I told my wife that when I retired, um, you know, I went in, I was 23 years old. I was in the best shape of my life. There's a lot of foot chases, fist fights. There's a lot of stuff that goes into patrol work. I don't want somebody in their forties or fifties that is out of shape, uh, that can't physically get over a wall. Again, my life's gonna depend upon uh, the actions of my fellow deputy and I wanna make sure that they're okay to do that. Um, there's a lot more foot chases than you guys probably realize in law enforcement. They do exist all the time. You got to be in shape for that. Injuries come out of that. Um, yeah, so I, I think optimal early to mid 20s, uh, and I'm okay with 21, 22, 23, fine by me. Um, the federal government restricts entry at 37. So you can't go be an FBI agent for the first time if you're at 38. Now they can't discriminate on age, blah, 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 but they're very particular on, on how that works. Uh, knowing, too, the longevity, they want people that are younger that can stay longer. Um, and you got to be physically fit to be able to handle the job. Tony, did you want to did you want to touch anything more on training, too, before we move on to some of the questions to the group? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I want to talk about training. We really haven't even talked about training. Everything we talked about was the hiring process. Um, training consists of a police academy, um, at least here for most of them, at least Mesa, Phoenix, MCSO, ours are not live-in academies. You go in the morning, you go home in the afternoon. 
<clears throat> excuse me, there are police academies throughout the country that you live in. Um, we have a handful of academies throughout the state. We have some up north. We have some down south. <clears throat> excuse me, I don't know what I got in my throat. <clears throat> but that's just the beginning. The whole environment from the police academy is very structured. Um, it's very intense. Um, it's not a touchy-feely. It is a break you. It is a build you down, break you, build you up if we can. <clears throat> but the whole aspect of the police academy is to put you in an environment where they can control what's going to happen. And they can see how you're going to handle high stress. Uh, because if you don't handle it well, what are you going to do in the parking lot of a Walmart <clears throat> when you're the only officer out there and you've got a six foot four, 285 pound bodybuilder that wants to fist fight you? How are you going to de-escalate that? How are you going to handle that? So there's all kinds of scenarios that you go through in the academy. They're all high stress. <clears throat> but again, it's designed to control you and to see what you can do. Um, and if you can't make it in that academy, they want you out now. They're not going to limp you through saying, oh, man, you got to just try a little bit harder. We need you to get through this because we need the numbers. They know the liability right there. If you can't cut it in the academy, you're not going to cut it in probation. You're not going to cut it in, in patrol, and you're going to be a massive liability to that agency. So it's designed to – I don't want to say designed to make you fail because it's not, but it is designed to break you. And then they're going to see who they can build up from there. And you got to know that going into it. It's a mental game. Jared can tell you that from boot camp. I never served in the military, um, but I've done, I've done a couple of police academies, one out in California, out here. And the whole design is to break you down and build you up, but you have to be prepared right here. And we talk about the mental health and the well being long term for law enforcement, but it starts in that academy. And there's guys that can't wrap their head around that and they can't get it through their head and they end up tapping out. Um, I just went through that recently with somebody that was going through an academy here. Family reached out to offer some support and uh, I spent every ounce of energy in my body to get him to understand that this is a mental mind game. We can't take it personal. We got eyes on the prize, big picture. He didn't make it. Hmm. You just didn't make it. And that's, that's, that's what it's designed for. So that academy, you cover everything from firearms, uh, training, um, vehicle. They teach you how to uh, uh, drive a vehicle, high speeds, maneuver, police pursuits, a lot of physical uh, agility, physical conditioning, um, a lot of <clears throat> arrest procedures, uh, violent arrest procedures. How do you fight with somebody? How do you... Um, arrest somebody that doesn't want to be arrested. A lot of constitutional law. Um, you cover everything. Start early, go late, very, very well organized. Um, excuse me, from the friends of mine that were in the military, there's a lot of comparisons. I, I can't compare it. I was never in the military, but a lot of the structure. The structure is the most important thing. You can't run a police academy loosely and expect success. It's just not going to happen. Um, and so, that's where it all starts. Once you come out of the academy, you never stop learning. The training never stops. There's proficiency training. You got to qualify with your firearm, depending on your agency, at least once a year, some or twice a year. You got to qualify at night. Uh, some agencies require that. Uh, your firearms proficiency is standardized. Every agency, Phoenix PD, MCSO, Mesa PD, Tucson, Flagstaff, it doesn't matter. You have the same 
a qualification annually that you have to hit. It's a 50 round course. There's a minimum score you have to hit and you got to pass that every year. If you can't pass that, you cannot be out on the street carrying a sidearm and being a police officer. Um, there is uh, proficiency training in other aspects too, depending on what your field is. Like I went into investigations. We had tons of training on constitutional law, search warrants, procedures. Um, we had quite a bit of tactical training too. Um, I was a negotiator for our SWAT team for a few years. Um, so I had that training on that side. There's constantly, you never get into law enforcement and then there's no training. But I think sometimes that's the perception of the public. Like, well, these guys don't know any better. They don't know what it's like. They don't do this. The, the average person does not know the amount of hours that go into training. Uh, because I was in investigations, I did training all the time on interviewing and, and interrogating. Uh, body language. What does that look like? Um, there's no shortage of the topics and it was constantly going on. Every patrol officer had to have so many hours of proficiency training and continuing education. Um, and it never stopped. From day one to my very last year when I retired, I still had to hit my proficiency training uh, to be able to maintain that. If I may just acknowledge something that occurred to me while you were sharing that, Tony. It's in, it, my curiosity has always been, we often see in the public the, the examples of the Derek Chauvin's or the you know, law enforcement gone bad. And it, it paints a very broad picture with a very large, you know, large brush. And thinking of how many thousands of officers who are out there who are dealing with a not necessarily always respectful public and how few of those instances we actually see on TV. And, I, and the reason I mentioned this is I saw a video that was shared recently, and I believe this was in Texas. And it was a officer's responded. I'm not sure what the nature of the response was, but there was a, a couple, I'm assuming, a woman and a man. And they were yelling all sorts of obscenities at the officer, calling him every single name you can imagine, you know, telling him to get the fuck out, terrorist, whatnot, all these types of things. And the officer was so unbelievably calm the entire time as he was trying to address the reason he was called there. And I, it, it made me wonder because I could feel myself getting agitated while watching the video. I was like, I, I had that, you know, fuck these people. Like who, who do they think they are? Like they don't get to do that. And I think that's something that we're afforded almost as a public, right? Is we have that luxury of being able to have that emotional release um, stuff that's frustrating. Most of us wouldn't even tolerate that. And I think of how I hear some of the public outrage projected towards officers and I hear some of the, you know, very not kind words. And I, friends of mine who are in law enforcement who have talked about how they've been, especially these last several months, were receiving death threats or friends and family are receiving threats. And yet I feel like the instances that actually get put on TV of law enforcement gone bad are so few and far between. And I just, I want to mention that as an outsider looking in that it just, it, to acknowledge that at some core level, the training must be working a majority overall well, that law enforcement's able to go and deal with that kind of pressure from that kind of, you know, whether it's a verbal barrage or physical barrage and still maintain what seems like a fairly low incidence of, of what we, what the media often seems to like to paint the picture of law enforcement being. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that's a valid point too. Um, 
You're 100% correct. I also want to tell you, you know, when we're talking about this training and the structured environment, um, it's for a lot of reasons, but you have to think about the liability out there. If you do uh, have an officer that goes out there and turns into a Derek Chauvin, you know, what does that look like? Uh, what are the ramifications of that? Um, some of the training that we do, so every year you have to do firearms. Every year you have to do uh, simulated um, firearms training. Um, it used to be computer generated. Now it's actual shoot houses. You got to go in and clear them. Um, we're constantly training on knife attacks, things like that. So the general public does not know that within 21 feet, a person holding a knife is a threat to a police officer. Um, and people don't realize that. But I knew and I was trained, if you're a bad guy and you have a knife and you get within those 21 feet, you're, I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to drop that threat. Um, it looks horrible. Um, people don't understand that. And so we do a lot of those trainings too. We would do scenarios where, <clears throat> excuse me, they're very controlled environments um, and they would do role playing and you don't know what your scenario is going to turn into. Um, all of a sudden you're in the middle of a scenario and it could be a guy with a knife and there's some liability too there. Let, let's put it on the other foot. What if that guy with a knife gets within three feet of me, four feet of me? What if that guy with the knife kills me? You think there's liability there? You think if a police officer dies, you think there's family going after an agency, a county, a city, a municipality? There is. There's liability on both sides of it, too. So it's not always a one-way street um, on use of force and what that looks like. But there is a lot of time, money, energy, and personnel hours that are spent on training, and it never stops. It never goes away. It's continuous. So I just wanted to comment on what you said about the, the knife at, at 21 feet. Um, Cause instantly, like I, I've thought about, I thought about my, my own um, personal experiences, not as a military person or as a, as a police officer with people with knives that were far enough away from me that, you know, um, that I didn't feel like they could reach out and stab me. Um, but then thinking about it from a police officer standpoint, um, and that's because in an argument or whatever, um, and I'm not armed, right, one. And two, I'm not there to stop them from doing any harm to anyone else, right? It's, like, and I'm, it's not my job to arrest them. So my purpose is I'm just going to keep my distance and leave the scene, right, if someone has a knife and they're 21 feet away from me. So I don't think threat, right? And that's in my personal experience. But if my job is different and I'm a police officer, right? And I'm supposed to protect and serve and I have a person acting rationally with a knife in front of me. And so I need to, one, make sure everyone else in the area is safe, right? And preferably get the knife away from the person. Or if I'm, especially if I'm looking to detain them, right? And they have that knife and they're 21. 21 feet is seven yards. I don't know if anybody can think about People can run a 40-yard dash in 4.5 you know, seconds, right? You cut that down to seven yards, then somebody can probably cover that distance in about one second, one and a half seconds. You know what I mean? Even a slow person is going to cover it in – a super slow person is going to cover it in two seconds. So less than a second, right? They're less than a second away from being able to stab you. And then think about how long it takes to pull your, your weapon as a police officer, aim and shoot, right? 
And so I think I'm super happy that you said that because one, I didn't know it, <laughs> right? And two, more importantly, as a, as, a, as a private citizen, right? I think a lot of times when, I think one of the major issues with this whole, with everything that's going on is that we think about police officers' jobs right somehow we we forget what their job is i think when we talk about it we forget because like when you said it i thought about that situation as a regular person and i've been in a situation where someone had a knife further away from me but i never thought about it in terms of like oh my job is to take that knife from that person you, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And they're threatening me with it or like part of my, you know what I mean? I'm, I, at the end of the day, I have to get that person and take them in. Right? <laughs> it's not like, oh, I have to get out of the situation alive, right? Not only do I have to get out of the situation alive, I have to do something about this person with a knife. And I, and I, and I think that as, as regular everyday people, when we think about those types of shootings, we're not thinking about it from a standpoint of what we're asking. We're asking that officer to get that person off the street or that person, that officer's job during that time was to get that person off the street. Um, so I, I think, I think that, you know, that different perspective about how you handle it, it one, it was completely different for me. Right. Cause like I instantly when you said, I was like, I'm not worried about somebody 21 feet away with a knife. And, but if my job is different and I have to, I have to arrest that person and yeah, I'm probably, I'm going to put him down too. Right. Sure. And, 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 um, because why, because why not? At least once they step within that range where they're literally like six, seven steps away from stabbing me and they're not going to, you know what I mean? They're going to come in lunging. It's not like, you know, they're not going to walk up on my face. I don't know. So like, I, I, I appreciate you. I think those are the type of pictures that we can paint yeah. and it helps people understand. Um, and then uh, I think that I'm, I'm sorry if I'm looking on my phone, I'm looking on my phone for what and what questions we're answering just by going through. Um, and I think we, we, we are, we're breezing through a good amount of them. Um, I actually saw, I'm, it makes me happy to hear about the training because I do think we're doing a good job. Um, and, but I think that there are gaps and I think so, so, so I think people are thinking big overall looping changes, right? But I think that a small incremental changes will create exponentially better results. And, I, um, and so I guess, um, I would, I would ask you before, I don't know if we want to get into questions right now, cause I know we're running out of time, but I, I kind of want to ask you. No, let's get into questions. All right, Jesse, you go, you go ahead and have the first question. But I think we need small incremental changes, and I want to know what you think those are, Tony. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to get into those changes. I just want to clarify, too, as we transition past the 21 feet, because most of your audience is not going to be familiar with this. So I just want to be very clear. What we're talking about is creating that ground. Somebody, a suspect, closing that gap of 21 feet within seconds uh, incredibly fast. Jared mentioned five to six feet steps you can clear 21 feet in five to six steps if somebody knows what they're doing with that knife um, they can put that knife in you 
within seconds within that gap. The general public doesn't know that. Those are one of the things we train on. And we talk about liability. Everything's liability. If you're standing at 21 feet and you're threatening me and you're going to kill me, those are felonies. You can't threaten to kill a police officer. My job is to now take you into custody because what's the liability if I don't take you into custody? And now you leave and now you're gone or now I let you walk back into your residence and there's a family that's now in danger. We just don't know, there's too many unknowns. So I don't wanna be calloused in saying it's just automatic, although it is pretty much automatic. There are some training standards that we have to adhere to. Um, so I just, sorry, I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, and I just wanna piggyback one more question and then I'm gonna keep, that's a really quick, quick ask. And then I'm going to hold us all the time integrity of 20 minutes because I know, Tony, you have something to do afterwards. I know we want to keep this video within a respectable and we, we need to jump to the group questions. When you're talking about 21 feet and putting people down, so just so people also, just a way to conceptualize it, that's the body length of essentially, you know, three and a half humans. If you think about that, for most of us, that might be the distance from our kitchen to our living room or a smaller space than that, or maybe even our kitchen to our front door. So it's a very small space. And I, I want to, because a lot of times I'll hear people say, well, why, why do you have to shoot them in center mass? Like, why is it, why is that the way? Why don't you shoot them in the hand if they have a knife? You know, why don't you neutralize it that way? It's, and I wonder if you could just maybe address that really quickly. Like, why is it center mass to neutralize a threat if it's like that versus trying to disarm the weapon? And then we can dive into questions. You only have 20 minutes. Are you sure you want to go there? <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel like, I, I, listen, uh, just full clarity too, I have like 50,000 other questions I want to go and in, in evolve into. And I think all of us have so much we could can talk, but I do want to yeah, keep no. all time integrity. I know, Tony, you have a tight turnaround after this too, so. No, I, I, absolutely. I, I think that's a fantastic question. Um, so we are trained uh, center mass. If we're put in a lethal scenario and, and where it's lethal force is justified, and let's use the knife for an example. Let's say this guy is now, he's, he's within that 21 feet. We're given verbal commands. He's not listening. Um, he is a danger. He is a threat. We've determined that we need to um, um, stabilize that threat. We're going to shoot center mass. That's how we're trained. Um, I will tell you uh, that is a high stress environment. Uh, your, your brain is bouncing, your body is doing funky things, uh, the adrenaline is pumping, uh, you're in a scenario where you're about to take the life of a human being. I'm responsible for every action that I take, um, good and bad. So if I do something dumb, I'm held accountable. Uh, if I shoot him and he's not justified to be shot, I'm going to jail and I'm being held for that. The problem that we get into is everybody wants to know why are we not shooting, let's use a knife for an example shoot the knife out of his hand. You know why? I'm not that good of a shot. Um, in that environment, I'm not gonna take that chance because I know, again, liability. 100% of what we do is liability. I am responsible for every round that comes out of the barrel of my firearm. And I'm not gonna take that chance shooting at a, a knife um, and missing that knife and God forbid, God forbid hitting a sleeping child in an adjacent bedroom, um, it's not gonna happen. So if it's a lethal scenario, and that is a lethal scenario, we're going to shoot center of mass. We're going to continue to shoot center of mass until that threat is stopped. So he could be hit once and still moving, twice, third time, still moving, on his knees, lunging forward. He's going to continue to get hit until he's no longer a threat with that knife, that firearm, whatever he has. I also want to clarify, too, uh, on the knife thing, people say, well, why aren't you tasing him? Why aren't you using less lethal? 
Well, our policy, again, our, I'm retired. And most policies for law enforcement, if you're the only officer on scene, you can't use less lethal anyway. Um, it's not an option. You have to have lethal uh, backup with you. So in the knife one, it's not even a less lethal scenario anyway. If you're within that 21 feet, you shouldn't even be talking taser. It's already become lethal if you're that close. But if it's greater than that, let's stay there 45 feet. Let's say you're able to establish dialogue. If I'm by myself, by policy, I can't go right to my taser. Um, because if my taser doesn't work, he pulls out a firearm, I'm holding a taser, I get shot. So you got to have both. If you're going to use a taser or less lethal, you got to have lethal force. Mm. Um, so I just wanted to clarify that. Um, as far as center of mass, it's, it's the, how everybody's trained, center of mass. It's the biggest target on the human body. It's where all your vital organs are, center of mass. We're also trained now, and we started this post 9-11, center of mass, headshot, center of mass, headshot. If I'm hitting you and my threat is not stopping, I'm going to transition headshot. Headshot, headshot, because body armor. People are wearing body armor now. We saw that. That was a huge problem in the North Hollywood shootout in the mid-90s in Los Angeles with the bank robbers. So did they teach you shoot pelvis too? We shoot, they teach us to shoot pelvis too. Um, yeah. Military. Yeah, so we're, we're not, I was not trained pelvis. I've heard that now, and it may be going on now, but mine was all center of mass head, center of mass head. But I know pelvis is a, a critical spot too, obviously. Yeah. Because if you hit, if you shoot somebody, shoot hip bone. If you hit the hip bone, they're they're dropping. They're not running anywhere. Um, if you anyway. Um, you want to? I guess I know we got to get to the questions, and we got time. Um, Fifteen. I just want to say the six to eight 15, weeks. Fifteen minutes, guys. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we probably, have, probably, good luck. We have let's, good luck, right, Jesse. Let's good just, luck. Let's just jump to the we, questions. Four questions we haven't answered. We haven't addressed. Them. <laughs> All right. Well, let's 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 try to pick um, uh, maybe three of the questions and then let Tony talk. Um, do you want to do the first question? Um, I think a lot of Jamie's questions were answered. Yeah, there's one she asked I think would be important to just, and maybe we can circle back to the end about police, police profiling. Yes. Um, but I think we could come back to it. I know Etienne asked a few questions, and why don't we start with his? Because I think some of Jamie's other ones got. So if you want to go ahead and read his off. Okay, so uh, I'll start with um, his first question was, how do the police protect their own um, that speak out against acts of violence? Um, or they speak out against improper behavior or criminal acts of fellow policemen um, and then encourage. So how, how does, what is in policing structure? I'm going to try to simplify the question that protects good police officers who speak out against bad ones. Like how is that, is that encouraged? Um, and then, you know, what do you think could be done to, to, to put it in place so that a good cop can, speak up because i think those measures are already in place for the most part uh, again all i can use is my example but when i was going through um i was never exposed to cops doing blatantly bad things planting evidence bad shootings i mean that's the media that uh puts a lot of those images in our head like that happens all the time it doesn't happen all the time the vast majority is these men and women are making the right call on this there are some bad cops, 100%, we know that. We've seen those examples in the media, um, but I was never exposed to something like that. I knew that I wasn't gonna put a bad cop 
um, was not going to allow, allow them to tarnish my career at all. hundred um, percent. I worked too hard for this. I earned the badge that I wore. I earned the honor and the pride that I had. And I wasn't going to let a bad cop tarnish that or take that from me. I'm going to piggyback on this question because I think he, he expanded on it um, as well as how do police repair the relationship with the community and be trusted. I think what you're doing right now in terms of explaining what the training looks like, what the high-end process looks like, I don't know why this has not been out on any mass media um, publication at all um, because you see a lot of propaganda about the training that police go through or how poorly trained they are. You see, you hear this conversation a lot, but you don't hear what you've just laid out for us. You, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then um, just to piggyback on what SEN said, I would say if you do have bad cops, and I, I know you have this experience with the Phoenix Police Department um, a while ago, if you do have bad cops, they usually don't hang with other with good cops. They usually hang with other bad cops and they have like this little nexus and they don't show, they don't act bad around cops that they know won't stand up for it. And I think that becomes, you know, probably a part of the issue is that like, like if you're a bad guy, you're not going to go hang with good guys. Like that's not, you're not, you're not out there hanging with people that are doing the right thing. You're hanging with people that aren't and you, and you hide it. You know what I mean? You actually work to hide it. So can you, you feel yeah, comfortable absolutely. talking about that? So think about this. So use Phoenix police for an example, maybe 3000 certified police officers, uh, the sheriff's office where I worked, we were, I think 800 certified police officers. You can't possibly know everybody. When I retired out of our office, I didn't know everybody. <clears throat> I knew a lot. Um, but there could have been guys that were doing crazy things. I just didn't know about them. Um, Phoenix PD for sure. When you have that many and if they're running in those circles, but again, that's not, that's not the norm. Um, so I just, I, I really can't even answer to that because I was never exposed to that. I just knew, I, I just knew in my career, I wasn't going to allow my career to be tarnished by the actions of a knucklehead or something that I knew was blatant. I can tell you, I went through my career and I didn't personally know anybody that was doing anything illegal or blatant, anything like that. Um, and I think the general public doesn't realize that. I think the general public thinks we all know, we're all covering up, we're all... Uh, trying to keep them from getting in trouble. I, I told you last week, a good cop will be the first one to call out a bad cop all day long. That hasn't changed. It's not going to change. So I, I know we got another question, but you had, there was an incident in while you were a police officer in Phoenix and you said it was like six mm -hmm. cops had done, I don't remember what the exact, exact thing was, but six cops had done something or like they were part of something um, a profiling incident. And oh, no, no, no. That wasn't Phoenix. That was my agency. That was the sheriff's office. So there was a racial profiling lawsuit that came about. They were held accountable for that. Wasn't anybody I knew. Didn't even know what was going on. I worked in my homicide unit, but we had another specific group that was out and they were profiling. They were racially profiling. They were found to do that. Um, yeah, that, that was absolutely my agency. You told me how shocked you were when it came out, like they were actually. Yeah, we heard this was going on. I'm like, nobody's racially profiling. It's not happening. I mean, we all took the same oath. Um, I was proved wrong. They, they were racially profiling and they represented our agency. 
in our agency, every sworn officer was held accountable for the actions of a very, very few small, a very few. Um, but 100% it happened. One of the questions was profiling. I, I don't even know if we'll, actually, we are going to hit that because I'll make sure we cover that. Um, but yeah, 100%. That, that happened in my agency and I had no idea. I no idea it was even happening. That was the next question you were going to ask, right, Jesse? Well, let's, yeah. let's jump right into it. Um, you know, there's a difference between racial, well, you know what, Jesse, ask the question. I want to make sure we cover the question exactly how it's asked. Well, the question is asked, do police profile what is the psyche behind this behavior? And is it fair? So I think that there's, I think that what Jared just contributed, it expands this question a little bit between my initial interpretation is, is, are we profiling certain people we might think are criminals? Are we pro Is that tied into racism? So I, I'll just, we'll just kind of leave that to that. Is, is there profiling? What's the psyche behind that? So you're using the word profile. Mm -hmm. um, did I profile? I profiled. Did I racially profile? Absolutely not. Did I criminally profile? 100% of the time. Um, there were very specific actions that I would look for when I was in patrol that were characteristic with criminal behavior. Um, and I think people say profile and they just automatically hear in their head racial. That's a hundred percent wrong. Does racial profiling happen? Yeah, it happened in my agency. We dealt with it. Um, Jared just brought up that prime example. 99% of our agency had no clue. 1% was out there doing it and we all paid the price for it. And this occurred probably 2014, 13, 14, 15. And for a couple of years, we were going through litigation. I was telling my family, they weren't racially profiling. It's 2015. That doesn't happen. Because I wasn't racially profiling in my police car. I wasn't pulling people over because they were black or Hispanic or white. I just assumed nobody else was. And I looked like an idiot when it was all said and done. Because guess what? It happened. Racism exists. It 100% exists in 2020. Um, but criminal profiling, I think, is constructive police work. There are certain things that I know to look for. If we have high crime areas, um, commercial places, and we have vehicles there at three in the morning, a blacked out, engines running, uh, backed up to a door, that, that's odd behavior. That's not normal behavior. We're going to check that out. I don't even know who's in that driver's seat. I don't know if they're black, white, or Hispanic until I make contact. So I'm sure not making contact because I think uh, they are their specific race. I'm making contact because that car is out of place at this hour of the morning in an area where we have major commercial burglaries, um, where we've seen recent sprees, things like that. Um, I know, I know for the most part, bad guys that are on the run, what they're going to do, some of their behaviors. I know for the most part when somebody's carrying a gun, and it's printing. Things they're doing, body language, they're inadvertently covering, they may walk off to the side. There's certain behaviors that you can profile looking for bad guys. Again, it has nothing to do with race. I don't care if they're Asian, white, um, if they're committing crimes, they should be held accountable for the crimes that they're committing. Does that answer the question? Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And then there is one about from Patricia about how do you see the future of the police force in the next five to 10 years? Where, will there be more pressure and scrutiny? And then how can we support and improve police forces? 
These are great questions, by the way. Can I just pause and thank the group for sending these questions in? Um, because that's what I desire to have real conversations about real questions that, that your audience is thinking about. Um, where are we going to be in five to 10 years? I don't know. I really don't. Um, it depends. If, if, police office, if police agencies are defunded, it's going to be bad. You know, we talked about the training. If your budget is cut, what do you think is the first that goes in a police agency? Your training. It's gone. We already spent a ton of time talking about how important that is. Um, in the next five years, I, I, I think immediately we're not going to see that much huge change, at least out here. I can speak on behalf of Arizona, Metro Phoenix, the police agencies out here. Um, there has to be community accountability. There just has to be. We've got to implement a system where we can do that. Um, I love these forums where we can come in and talk, but guess what? I'm not a cop. I'm not a cop anymore. I'm just a retired cop. And, and honestly, most, not most, but a lot of people aren't even interested in what a retired cop has to say. They're interested in what the police department that represents my community, excuse me, has to say. Now we have groups, community action groups. And these are men and, women of men and women of police departments to go out and hold these forums with the community. Those are great. We need to keep those up. As a matter of fact, we probably need to ramp those up um, and we need to get more intentional about those. We've done them for years, but how great have they been over the years? I think there's a, uh, there's a massive need right now. And we've got to use that vehicle to go into the communities and talk about these. Let's talk about these topics from the present law enforcement that are representing those communities. And um, there's, there's topics that we're gonna have to agree to disagree on, but let's find the common ground. Um, and if nothing else, let's just share what it's like. Let's let, let the community hear about the things we talked about here, training, hiring, what does it look like, accountability. Um, let's have those tough conversations. And I, I, I assure you, most police agencies are doing that already. Phoenix already doing it. Mesa, Tempe, Chandler, all the agencies out here, Gilbert, they're already doing it. Um, but we're going to be doing it more and we probably got to do it on a bigger scale. Um, but there has, to ha there has to be some type of accountability for the police department and for the community too. Um, this is a two-way yes. street. Yes. These, these police agencies are part of your city um, and they respect your buy-in, but let's do it the right way. Let's have a forum where we can have constructive criticism and good feedback. And, and the biggest thing is we have to just keep the conversation going. We, we just have to. And if there's municipalities that haven't even started it, well, shame on them, but you got to start it now. We can't just keep running from it. The problem's not going to go away. We've got to address it head on, and we've got to be able to um, accept our deficiencies where we've screwed up. The community deserves that. Um, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it is a two-way street because I have, I have been. I used to do a little bit of community organizing and stuff like that, and I've been to other stuff because my dad did it for years. Um, I've been to those things and the people that show up or the demographic of the people that show up for those types of meetings and things like that typically aren't the ones out there who are the most angry and upset yeah. or, or that, you know, you, you understand what I'm saying? Like, like the, the, the demographic is older people. You may have some people who might be like, you know, parents and, or whatever. You don't see hardly any young people and things like that. Um, and 
so, so I think some of that, some of the onus for that in, in the places that, you know, where police are reaching out and creating these conversations, some of the problems or issues are, are in the community of themselves. They're like, they're not, they're not getting to know their officers when their officers do reach their hand out to get to know them. Um, I think so. So I think it needs to be, it has to be two-way street. It has to be like, not, not don't get me wrong, at this point, um, you know, as just because of the way things are going, the way the world is structured right now, it, the, the police have to make the, the effort. They like, they gotta like put both arms out right? <laughs> because the public is um, upset in general, rightly or wrongly. Um, but I'm gonna say that the community, my community has to then also be willing to come to the table and sit and speak and listen and listen because this is I, I can't even say how much I'm um you know if I were just reading on the internet um I would think police hiring is horrible <laughs> sure. I would think that sure. police training is shitty you know what I mean um and this is it's a conversation that needs to be had um and, and I'll say this, so people put up how long Police Academy is without noting the three to six months hiring process or anything else like that. Um, it actually doesn't take, just having been in the Marine Corps and doing a 12 week boot camp, doesn't take that much to learn how to um, shoot a gun, right? It's like, it doesn't, it doesn't take that much. It doesn't take that much to learn, learn, scenarios of when to engage, how to engage, right? What takes a, what the, the problem I think comes into play or like you can train somebody all day for those types of scenarios, but you don't know how they're going to respond when they happen. Like though, like that, that kind of stuff is like, like, you got to get in the game and, and you have to have on, like you said, consistent on the job training and stuff like that. You have to get, you have to, you have to, you have to be out there in the world. So I don't, I don't, in other words, what I'm, the reason I'm saying that is because I've seen people put up, um, you know, I've seen specifically the doctor thing. I, you know, you learn eight weeks, spend eight weeks learning how to take a life. I spend nine years learning how to save one. Um, the difference the differences in policing is it's a lot of it's not it's not as much goodness gracious it's not a lot of science it's about a it's a lot of character if that makes any kind of sense it's a lot of character the actual the actual job and the technical technical aspects of the job and doing the job are not that um, crazy advanced, unless you become a detective or an investigator or some kind of special unit, right? But as a patrol officer, it's a lot about character. And then do you know, do you have what it takes, like on the inside, right? And so you can't, you can't, uh, you can't draw out training into a year training and, and, and make that happen. If so I'm making any it, it, it does. And I just want to say this and I'll turn it back over to you, Jesse. So think about that. So all this stuff we talked about, um, the police know that. I already know that. 
I know what the training looks like. I know what my environment looks like. I know that I'm trying to deal with uh, the human aspect of it, raising children, having a successful marriage at home, and then going to work and constantly hearing the criticism um, from the general public. And again, I don't think it's the voice of the majority, but you hear about it through the media, social, social media, the news. And then you hear people, well, why won't the cops talk about it? Why are they so rough? Why, why won't they provide an opinion? That's why, because they're constantly second guessed. They're constantly degraded all of the time. Um, that's just, that's the world that we live in. So when things happen and there's national attention, the police aren't gonna be the first ones making social media posts about what's going on until they hear all the facts. Doesn't mean they agree. They're just trained. They're, first of all, they're used to just being not liked, and then they're trained to get the totality of everything that's going on. Um, it's, it's, just, it's just the world that we live in, right? Right, wrong, or indifferent. Um, so I'm thankful for the opportunity to create this environment, but I want you to think about that when, if you have police that don't wanna talk about anything, whether it's topics like this or just engage in any of these conversations, it's because they're constantly living in that world where they're just not, well-respected for good cause on some of them. Don't get me wrong for good cause on some of them, but don't lump them all into that category. It's dangerous. Gentlemen, I'm going to assume the role of police officer here and police the time because we are now over time of our time budget. So we're going to, we're going to end this way. I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask Tony just one final question. And I think we already kind of covered it, but just in case anything we didn't, uh, you can just touch on it very briefly. And this is such a broad question and on but and then maybe just restate your organization and what it is and what you're doing with it just so people who haven't seen this particular video before can also I, hold me accountable tony to getting your email address so i can include it with the or your email address your website for your organization so i include it with all the notes and everything i'm going to give you two minutes to do all that and then what I'm going to do is, Jared, I think you could take maybe 60 seconds to just maybe quickly summarize a big aha insight, something you took away from, where you'd like to continue to explore deeper. And then I can do the same, which means I'm giving us a total of four minutes, gentlemen, to wrap this up and make sure Tony gets to his program. All right? You guys up for the challenge? So, Tony, we touched on this a little bit. Patty asked, I'm probably, uh, wait, don't need that. She said, what is currently in place for law enforcement to deal with the trauma they see every day? I know we touched on this a little bit, just so you can fill in the gaps maybe we missed. What do you think needs to be implemented? What measures can we use to identify and address desensitiz desensitization in the workplace? So I don't know what current measures are in place. Uh, when I was employed full-time, uh, there were none that I was aware of. Um, I should say, yeah, there were none that I was aware of. They could have been out there. I just didn't even look for them at that time. Um, I know that the environment is changing. I know that mental health well-being is becoming a much higher priority. Um, that is something that our organization is trying to get involved with. Um, to answer your question, our website is compassion-alliance.org, compassion-alliance.org. And what we do is we use our 501c3 donations and we go after our men and women that are protecting us saying, look, we care about you. We value you. We love you. We just want to get you healthy. And we want to take that financial burden away from um, them so they don't have to use insurance. They don't have to share with their HR or supervisor. We can just, we can just get them healthy. I just think we need more of that. Um, there are more and more resources like that popping up. Um, I'm optimistic that we'll continue to see more of those. 
Um, I want to spend, and I'm being respectful for your time, but there, there's two things that I want to talk about. Um, and, and I would be doing a disservice to this if uh, we hit stop recording and we didn't cover it. So just two things real quickly, a Citizens Police Academy. Whatever community you live in, whatever state you're in, inquire about that. Those are great opportunities. You can go in and you can see how your police department works. And, mm -hmm. and they're going to have real conversations, um, uncomfortable conversations but growing conversations. The community needs that. These are great things. I know all of our Valley agencies have them out here. Um, I don't know how often they do them and they're pro if they're doing them now, they're all virtual and they may not even be doing them because of COVID. But I encourage you look into that. They're, they're really good resources. Uh, you meet a lot of community activists um, through that. You, you will meet parts of your town, your city, uh, your local government will be involved with that. Those are really good. I also, and I know I'm at my two minutes, but I'm going to be really quick. We talked, we spent a lot of time on the use of force. Um, I'm going to encourage you. Um, there was a video that uh, Reverend Jared Maupin did. Um, Jared, I don't know if you saw this, but for those of you that are outside of Metro Phoenix, he's a reverend here in the Phoenix area. And he did a shoot, don't shoot scenario with the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office several years ago. It's fantastic. And I have a lot of respect for Jared for doing that uh, because he made himself vulnerable. Um, he thought it was one way, he went in and saw it a different way. So I would encourage you, just Google that. Go to YouTube and look up Reverend or Jared Maupin, MCSO, uh, shoot scenario, however you gotta Google it. Our local news covered it, and it's really good insight as to what it's really like and, and what some of these scenarios look like. Did I cover, did I answer the question that we needed, Jesse? Yeah, I think so. And I think with the nature of any of these conversations, it's going to inevitably bring up 50 more questions that we could go down. And Absolutely. I, I think, and I hopefully, Tony, in the future, you be open to it. We can have you back again. And Jared, I'm going to give you 60 seconds to just, you know, share maybe ahas, insights, anything that came up for you during these last I'll take Okay, I'll take five seconds to say thank you, Tony, for coming on, um, explaining all this stuff. Um, the thing that I, I really learned um, was that training-wise and hiring-wise, um, the police forces, to, in my opinion, doing a very good job. Um, uh, I, I feel, I came to the conclusion that the hole that I feel like, and that's maybe we can have you back on and talk about, that needs feeling is how the job changes a person and, and, and the steps that we can, we can do, you take, to, to, to minimize that or to help an officer when they're having a bad day or something like that or dealing with a lot of other emotional trauma and how they're processing that stuff, like specifically the mental as health aspects of it. And then um, I think a lot of education for the public for what a real life or death scenario looks like, right? And, um, and understanding you know, what it is that we're asking cops to do. So, um, Again, the, the most enlightening piece for me was the hiring process, how detailed it is, um, the training, um, the 21 feet thing, which was something I didn't, like the percep perception, perspectives. Um, yeah, so I think I probably used all my 60 seconds up, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 really, I really feel like, I, I feel, feel like we need to talk about how the job changes a person. Right, um, because I think people are coming into it um, with the right intentions and with the right mindset for the most part. Um, and, and I think that, uh, yeah, I, 
that's that's the piece that I would focus on. Sorry. Well, I, I would say this, uh, Jesse, and I'll, I'll just go real quick. Um, I, I think that's a great idea. I think we've done a good job in these last two videos, just building a foundation. What does it look like? What are you dealing with? I think it would be entirely appropriate to do a third one and just talk about, we just, we dig real deep into the mental health, uh, the well-being of it. And I think I may have just invited myself back on. <laughs> I think you did. <laughs> um, but I'm, I, I'm happy to do that, but I also don't want to get in the way. You guys are doing a great thing here, and I don't want the focus to be anything that we're doing. I, the focus needs to be you guys. You guys are doing an amazing job, so I don't even know if I need to participate in that. But whatever you guys need and whatever I can do to support you guys, I'm willing to do. If we want to do another video or another one after that, I trust you guys. I value your input. I respect the group um, and the people that are participating. Um, and so I just wanted to throw that out there, and I'll, I'll give it right back to you, Jesse. Yeah, thank you, Tony, again, for being here. And I think you did invite yourself back. And on behalf of Jared and I both, I will gladly accept that inv invitation. <laughs> One of our contributors, Andrea, mentioned something. She said, there's so much judgment. And I think overgeneralizations about the police, it must be hard to have conversations at times. And I just wanted to acknowledge you real quick, Tony, because from my perception, there does seem like a lot of judgment. There does seem like a lot of overgeneralizations in, in a lot of different categories. And I do think law enforcement, unfortunately, often receives the not so positive end of those generalizations. And so I appreciate you being willing to be here, being willing to be open, being willing to trust and being willing to have these tough conversations. One thing that I think came for me with all this is the value of having these kinds of forums in communities as an ongoing basis. Unfortunately, we don't come to the dinner table of conversation until the shit hits the proverbial fan. You know, human beings were such emotionally charged creatures, and it's not until we're emotionally charged that we actually start to talk about the things that really matter to us, whether it's these kinds of things, whether it's racial issues, or whether it's what's going on at home with our own families. And I think that there's a, there would be a really incredible opportunity for all of us, and I, I, I'm going to definitely look into that citizen's police to maybe inquire about, look into our local law enforcement look into going up and having those conversations, see if there is something there, reach out into our local law enforcement, see what kind of community thing there isn't. And if there isn't, maybe we could be inspired enough to start one. Maybe we could be inspired enough to just reach out. I remember several years ago, I went on a ride along because that was something that the community offered where you could go and do a ride along with an officer. And it was, it was, it was so insightful to me to do that and to see that experience. And then the officer was great, allowed me to ask all sorts of questions, gave me some really great feedback. And it was such an eye-opening thing and gave me a different perspective that I would never had before. And I, I think that one thing that came from me from all this too is spending this time with you, Tony, the last two weeks, it, it, you gave us permission to have a different perspective, you know, to maybe see the humanity more in law enforcement, to see some of the, the effort that goes into training and, and to remain human from it all. And yeah, I think that there's a thousand other questions I want to ask, but again, we're, I know I'm going over my time. So we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll wrap it up there and just uh, thank you everyone for watching and listening and being a part of the building a bridge community. I think it's these kinds of conversations that really will help mold the better world we all want to build. And thank you, Tony and Jared for always being a part of this. Awesome. Thank you awesome. very much guys. My honor. Thanks. Tony. See you all next time. Bye-bye. <laughs> Where's the, and, oops, cancel. I just almost just.